There we go. We working now? All right. Having fun technical problems today. That's all right. That's okay. Things are going good. Good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, grab it. Find James chapter 1. Before we get into that, let me share some stats with you this week. As I thought about Compassion Sunday and as I thought about the fact that we live in a world of radical need. According to World Vision, which is a ministry uh, that's combating world poverty, somewhere around 719 million people, 9.2% of the world's population live on less than $2.15 a day. Children and youth account for two-thirds of the world's poor, and the majority of those include uh, women in most of those regions as well. And if those numbers seem a little far to you, which they did for me, they seem a little kind of out there, a little far away, let me give you some that are a little closer to home. Today, as we speak, there are around 9,000 children in the Kentucky foster care system. One-fifth of children in Kentucky live in poverty. And this shouldn't be a, a shock as we even think about maybe our own community a little bit. And as God's people, we are called to play a role. And sadly, I think we look at needs and we think someone else is going to do it. Or maybe we think to ourselves, well, the government will take care of that. But friends, God has called us to do something about the spiritual and physical needs in our community. We can't help everyone, so we don't need to feel the pressure to do that, but we all can do something. And I think the letter to James, the letter of James, is the perfect place for us to be on Compassion Sunday. We've been walking through this letter verse by verse, and last week we were in verses 2 to 4, but we're going to jump to the end of chapter 1 and then kind of circle back around in the weeks to come. So look with me, we're going to look at one verse this morning. James chapter 1, verse 27. James chapter 1, verse 27. The word of God says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. Remember, as we've been going through James, our sort of title for this series is ABC Discipleship. Because James is writing this letter as a sort of instruction manual for how to follow Jesus. Giving us sort of a driver's manual, but it's a driver's manual for how to drive when Jesus is in the driver's seat of your life. <laughs> this is all about discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. And he's getting very practical. He shows us particularly discipleship in a world of need. And let's start where he starts. He starts with the word religion. Now, in Christian circles, we don't like the word religion very much, do we? You hear people say things like, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, right? We say that all the time, and I think I know what we mean to say, right? We're, we're meaning following Christ is not about rule-keeping, but it's about faith in Christ, right? We, it, we use religion often as synonymous with a sort of works-based salvation. But the word religion, at least in the mind of James, wasn't about works-based salvation, rather about works done out of our salvation. 
about good works done for the glory of God, about being the light of the world, about true and authentic worship, about pure ministry. Here's what we'll see first, is that religion that is pure and undefiled means this, ministry that is pleasing to God. That's where he wants us to begin to understand that he is offering for us what a ministry, a life of true and authentic worship looks like. Particularly, he wants to give us two marks of faithful ministry. Two marks of ministry and a life that's pleasing to God. And let's start with the first thing he wants us to see. He starts by saying, we must live a life with charity. Live a life with charity. The mark of faithful ministry is charity. And by this, I'm not meaning charity as a noun, as in an organization you give money to. No, 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 no. Charity is a verb. This is a, one of those old school words that's kind of fallen out of favor, and I think we need to bring it back. We need to bring the word charity back because charity means love. In fact, historically, this is the word for the virtue of Christian love. This is 1 Corinthians 13 love. If, if, you ever, if, if you've ever been to a wedding where anybody in the family is even slightly connected to church, they read 1 Corinthians 13 at the wedding, don't they? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. All those things. And that's all good and fine, but did you know that that passage is actually not about Christian marriage, but is about Christian community? Like, when we read that, I have to remind myself, this isn't about necessarily how husband and wife are to treat one another, though they should. It's about how we're to treat one another in the church. And the word for love there is really the, the example of charity. It's not the way we might love the new pizza place in town, right? This is a love that's committed, a love that's in action. Let me show you two translations of 1 Corinthians 13 up here. Let me show you this. First, the ESV. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then let's put the good old, the good old King Jimmy up there, right? And he says, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Charity is a particular form of Christian love, uniquely Christian love. It's the Greek word agape, and we're reminded here that we are called to show agape love. Not even the love we might have toward friends, not the love we might have toward things, but a love that is self-giving. A love like Jesus showed. And James has two particular ways he called his readers to show love. He says, hey, religion that's pure and undefiled means to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit the needy, the poor, the lonely in the midst of their needs. To care for them, to help meet any needs they have. James is calling for love in action. And I think we're often tempted to think, okay, who do I need to write the check to? That's love in action, right? But notice James's emphasis is actually on something that doesn't really cost a dime. To visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction. This can simply mean setting aside time to talk to somebody who needs to be talked to. 
to be a friend, a prayer partner, a shoulder to cry on, to weep with those who are weeping, to visit with the heart of service. And sure, along the way, we should also help with physical needs. But friends, it starts with a visit. It starts with going and seeing and talking and being there with them. In fact, Jesus teaches a parable, a famous parable about sheep and goats, right? And in the parable, he teaches that one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian, of a sheep, was their care for others, particularly their care for other believers in need. Matthew chapter 25 says this, Then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, that's believers, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Do you see this idea he's getting at here? They visited those in need. They helped care for them in the midst of their need. They did what they could with tangibles, giving food and water. They spent their time visiting the prisoners and the broken. And in the parable, it goes on to say that those who are on the right, the sheep, are going to ask, when did we do these things for you, Jesus? And here's what Jesus says, verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Notice, first, who Jesus is talking about. We often use the term least of these to refer to people who, who just did the general poor, the general needy. Actually, if you read through the Gospels, when it talks about the least of these, it's talking about the little ones. It's talking about his fellow disciples. He even goes on to say, the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He has a particular focus on believers, though I don't think that's the whole limit of the passage. And he reminds us that the mark of sheep the mark of God's people should be our charity and our love for others. Isn't that what Jesus said? The world would know that we are our disciple, that we are his disciples by how we love one another, particularly those in need. Back in the book of James, if you flip over to James chapter 2, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We're going to get to the relationship between faith and works when we get to this passage. But here's his point as it relates to this morning. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, if we're willing to wish the poor have a blessed day without trying to be a blessing in their lives, what sort of faith do we have? If we see need and are able to, that we are able to meet and overlook it, he says it shows a faith that's dead rather than one that's alive. God calls us to carry the burdens of others, particularly the needs of the most helpless. And to be an orphan in the first century was to be without hope. 
To be a widow in the first century was to be without a lifeline. And even today, around the world and around this community, there are so many people in need. And God calls us to care and to act, to be hearers and doers of the word. In fact, notice James roots all of this in the character of God himself. Look back at James 1, 27, at our verse this morning. Look at this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Did you notice it? James brings the fatherhood of God into this. Because it is the fatherly care of God that should lead us to care for others. In fact, we need to see this. Here's the point. God calls us to love the most needy among us because he has loved us when we were in our moment of greatest need. God calls us to love the most needy among us because, friends, he has loved all of us in our moment of greatest need. Did you know that no matter how dark your life has gotten, no matter how big you have blown it, we're reminded that God loved us even in our sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, But God shows, demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you see it? While we were still sinners. When we were spiritually broken and destitute, when we were at our weakest and our lowest, Christ died for us. He took our greatest need and put it on his shoulders. He paid a debt that we could not pay because of the sins we committed, and he died in our place. And by doing so and rising from the dead, he dealt with our greatest problem, death. And he killed its power that we might go free. And because God has loved us this way, we love others the same way as well. We don't wait for everybody to clean up their life before we serve and love them. Because, friends, I'm thankful God didn't do that for me. Because none of us would have ever cleaned up our life if it wasn't for the initiating love and grace of God. The Psalms say this about God. I love this. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Do you see that? God is serious about caring for orphans and widows. And as God's family, he calls us to care for those among us. And even to care not just for those in our walls, though I think we do have a special responsibility to care for those in close proximity to us, but also to care for other image bearers of God who are hurting, to show charity and agape love. Them. Let's ask ourselves this question. Does our church care about what God cares about? And that's something for us to reflect on. Do we care about what God cares about? Because it says his heart is to care for the needy and the broken among us. And in the early church, when they saw that there was a need because there was widows being left out of the ministry, friends, their church went to action and acted. And in fact, they called the first deacons to help meet the needs of the widows. Did you know, maybe some of y'all grew up in a church where the deacons were sort of in charge of the church. 
I don't know if you ever grew up in a church like that. Did you know that in the Bible, the leadership position wasn't given to the deacons? It was rather the service position. They were meant to do the ministry of visitation and care and service. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Look at this. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint came a, a, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distributions. They had this, you had a conflict in the church. Those never happen, right? And you had one group feeling like they were being left out of the ministry due to the other. I don't know whether this was intentional, accidental, whatever, but there was a problem, right? And so the 12, this being the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. They called the church together and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will appoint, devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parameus, and Nicholas, a prostatite of Antioch. And they set them before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice a few things. Notice that when the church saw a problem, sure, leadership offered direction, but the church body stepped in and chose men to take care of the task. And they didn't just send the men who were willing. Because, friends, there's a lot of people that are willing to do stuff. They don't need to be doing stuff. Right? They sent people who were willing and competent. Full of the Spirit, we're told, right? Full of the Spirit and who were full of wisdom and good repute. And they sent their best to go take care of this problem. Second, notice... The deacons did this so that the teachers, the apostles, were able to commit themselves to prayer and to teaching of God's words, like give themselves fully to that work. And the church chose these men, set their hands on them, and sent them to serve in whatever the need was. And look what happened when the church began to function as it was supposed to. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It's almost like some of our problems in not seeing the word of God increase is because we've structured the church in a way that God would not have us structure it. And when you got an organization that doesn't function as it's supposed to, it can't get the work done. So friends, think about it. We've got people here who serve in deacon-like roles, who serve in various ministries, but ask yourself, are there other things that need to be done that we could set apart people to do? We should think about if, we would, if God would be calling some of us to serve in a deacon-like role. People who would devote ourselves to ministries, to caring for the poor and doing visitation. People even who are just going to give toward these ministries and support the work around the world. And friends, it means not just caring with our wallets, but caring with our hands and our feet. And to be set aside for the work of the ministry before us. Because friends, God doesn't call us to be consumers, but to be catalysts of his love to the community. 
So will we give ourselves toward this work? Some are far too content with coming in and filling a seat. But the biblical model is we don't just come and fill a seat. We're called to fill the world. And true and undefiled religion is marked with charity. Some of us don't serve in the way we ought because we simply don't care as we ought. He says, start with your love. Do you care? Care for the poor and the needy among us. Care because there are lost people in our community who today stand guilty before God and need the gospel that we have. When realizing that we should care because God is a father who cares for his needy children. And notice when he says religion that's undefiled, pure and undefiled does these things, he's reminding us then if we don't have a religion that's like that, we've got a religion that he says, frankly, isn't worth its salt. <laughs> It's defiled and unclean. It's empty, dead, and powerless. We must live out our faith through charity. But people love to stop the verse right there. <laughs> but there's a second part in there. There's all these folks that are all about social justice, care for the poor, and that, that's, all, that's all good and fine as far as it goes in care for the world. But they forget there's a second part here about chastity. Charity and chastity about holiness, about keeping oneself free from the influence of the world. And this is what happened. There were so many organizations, so many churches that started out well in the care for the poor, but they forgot the second part of the verse. They loved the world, and then they let the love of the world invade their church. Here's the second mark of God-honoring ministry. A world in need needs holy people to live and love in it. James 1.27, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How you live in your private life is incredibly important to God. And it's incredibly important to others that you serve because God doesn't want people who simply help. He wants people who are holy. God doesn't simply care that we do good works. He wants God-honoring lives, hearts, attitudes, private lives that seek to line up with his word. He wants people unstained from the world. In other words, not under the world's influence. He isn't saying to take yourself completely out of the world, because if you did that, you couldn't care for orphans and widows, right? But rather, to keep ourselves free, free from sinful ideologies and the sinful pleasures of the world. This was a problem in the church, that, in the churches that James is writing to. And friends, it's even a concern in churches here in our own community. Let's see the three things, the three areas of concern James has for us. First, James would tell us under this theme of chastity and of holiness to stay away from worldly words. To stay away from worldly words. Look back one verse, James 1.26, and look what he says. If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He says, hey, if you think you're big and mighty, but you can't control what you post or share on Facebook, James says, I, there's no reason to believe it, <laughs> right? 
He has some hard words to say about our words, doesn't he? James chapter 3, just a couple chapters over, he gets direct. Look what he says. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. For from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Friends, among this congregation, there were people who were speaking words that dishonored God and hurt others. And so I would ask us, how can we care for the needy if we're going to speak ill of the needy? How can we claim to be people of compassion who speak carelessly? To keep ourselves unstained from the world means bridling our tongues. He says, hey, we can put lions and tigers and bears in the zoo and lock them up, but we can't control what's in our mouth and comes out. Be careful what we speak. Be careful that we believe we can somehow bless others if we simultaneously curse them. Because, friends, I'll tell you something. Your heart often follows your words. What you begin to speak, you then begin to love and become more comfortable with. Be careful that we speak with compassion. Because if we don't speak with compassion, we're not going to live with it either. Second. James says, he says, stay away from worldly words. And he says, second, stay away from worldly whims. Stay away from worldly whims. Friends, James condemns that these people had pride. They had partiality towards certain groups of people in their church. Look at James chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There was an issue among these believers James was writing to with partiality. They had special seats for the rich and powerful and other seats for the poor they held some people in high regard and others in low regard. They had insiders and outsiders. Friends, cliques in the church, never, right? We, that, that seems so foreign to anything we've ever experienced, right? The rich in the early church surrounded themselves with people just like them. And I'm afraid we're tempted to do the same I have heard people say when people have visited this church, why would we want them here? And I'm like, what do you mean why would we want them here? They're a soul who needs Jesus. Why is Sunday morning the most segregated hour in our community? And have we ever asked ourselves why that is? Friends, we need 
to not, we can't see ourselves as better than others if we're ever going to serve them. If we're ever going to care for other people, we have to see ourselves as people in need of the same care and love. And we must rid ourselves of partiality and of worldly whims about others. We are a church that's welcoming for all to come and hear the good news of Jesus. It's what we want. And that's what we work for. And finally, James would warn us to stay away from worldly ways. To stay away from worldly ways. They lived with jealousy and worldliness abounded. I love what James says here in James chapter 3. I love this. James takes the gloves off and he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. All right, James. <laughs> James taking the gloves off, right? Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's what jealousy and pride are. That's what love of the world does. And he warns us in James chapter 4 of this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you need to hear this again, particularly those of you who maybe be headed off to college. You're going to leave your nice little Trigg County community where everybody is a Christian here, right? And you're going to go off and there's going to be people who really think you're a bigot and hate them. And you need to be ready to know that if you're going to be friends with the world, you, they're going to perceive you to be an enemy of theirs. Or if you make friends with the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. We've got to be careful to understand this. And the people James was writing to were filled with the ways of the world. And the ways of the world will never help meet the needs of the world. God doesn't simply call us to serve the world around us, but to live as people of another world, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, but to also have head and hearts that are shaped by Jesus. Discipleship in a world of need will require charity and chastity, holy helpers. And this reflects the character of our God and Father as well. Jesus says this, You therefore must be perfect or holy as your heavenly Father is perfect. He roots all this in the fact that our heavenly Father loves us and has shown us love, so we live in holiness because He's holy. We seek to, to, to reflect His holiness. He's adopted us into our family, and we know this. The more and more you spend time in a particular family, you begin to take the image on of that family, don't you? You walk like Him. You talk like Him. You start doing things they enjoy. And so he says, as we spend time in his family, we walk more and more in the shoes of our Father. We're going to become more like him in love and in holiness. And one day we're going to be fully like him because we will see him as he is. What does God desire of his followers? Charity and chastity. Mercy, not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Church, would we say that we're people who live with agape love and walk in holiness with our God? We've seen the needs of kids worldwide, but there's also so many physical and spiritual needs right here in our community and right here even represented in this gathering. 
how will we respond? Let me be frank. Many of us are far too satisfied on the sidelines than in the game. We're consumed with our own needs rather than the needs of others. And I know there was a season where I think a lot of our volunteers and a lot of our church members were pretty burned out, running hard for two decades, maybe pushing a little too hard in some ways for two decades. COVID hit, and friends, the rest was nice, and for many it was needed. But you know, God never calls us to retire from his work because he hasn't retired the need. We don't have to run ourselves ragged to come out of our rest and to serve with needed strength. And some of you are doing that. If you're serving here, this isn't for you. This is for those who might just be comfortable sitting and filling the seats and not committing to serve. Our church must make a priority to care and serve others, but also to care for those who are serving others and to give them a break to not think someone else will meet that need. I don't need to. So let me make two closing invitations. And I promise we're almost done. Let me make two closing invitations. Believer today, if you are not serving the needy in the name of Jesus, God is asking you to take a step forward in that regard. You can start. There's a compassion table outside if that's something you're interested in. It can start with signing up to serve at a ramp ministry. We have widows in our church and in our community who'd love a call or visit this week. There's going to be opportunities to serve poor, poor and needy children at VBS. Heck, we serve children every single week here in various capacities. And this can even include serving on worship tech. There's so many ways we fulfill the spirit of James 1.21 and all of these ministries that we do. God is calling us to be holy helpers. How will we respond? But the second invitation is to come out of the world and to live unstained and spotless through the blood of Jesus. Did you know Jesus came and lived a sinless life? He perfectly lived out James 1.27. He was never negatively influenced by the world. And if you ever reread the Gospels, you'll begin to notice a lot of his miracles had to do with orphans and widows. He served. And Jesus ultimately made our greatest need his primary concern when he willingly set his face toward a cross where he would die for sins that he didn't commit, he'd be buried in a borrowed tomb and he'd rise again that we could be cleansed fully of sin's penalty and its power. And he makes an invitation to all of us today to step out of the way of the world and into the light of life. For some of you, this may mean an initial first step of faith. An initial commitment to follow Jesus. Eternal life can begin for you today through a simple prayer of commitment to Jesus. And in these next moments, I'll be down front if you need somebody to pray with. There's those around you who would love to pray. If you realize that you have never come to know the God of compassion, you can know him today through prayer and repentance. Through faith in Jesus and repentance of sin. Friends, but it also may mean that some of us need repentance from living in the way of the world rather than the way of Jesus. You know, there's this old school thing they would do where you would come forward and you would rededicate your life. Did you know there's actually there's nothing about rededicating your life in the Bible? I've read it cover to cover. The biblical word for that is repentance. Turning from the way you're living 
and turning back. And that's the good news, friends. Jesus stands ready to receive you. If you need to get back on the road, he stands ready if we turn from our way and follow his way. If you need to respond in any way this morning through prayer or through talk or through counsel, I'm here, there's others around you. But today, our God stands ready to meet you in your commitment with the grace of Christ. Will we step forward in obedience? Will people look at our church and say that we have a James 1.27 church, a church with religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, who cares for widows and orphans and keeps ourselves unstained from the world? May it be so. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we desire our religion, our worship, our ministry and service to you to be pleasing to you. We long for it to be something that is a sweet sacrifice to your ears and to your sight. And Lord, I want to pray right now that if there's anybody here who has never stepped into an initial faith relationship with you, that they would do so. I also pray that you'd help those of us that are just off track to get back and realign, that we would repent, that you would receive us as we are in your love and grace. Lord, empower us by your spirit to go out into this week with a heart of service and to keep us unstained from the distractions and the evils of the world. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy
a fitting prayer as we are sent out. Remember, we never dismiss our service because worship never stops, but we are sent out, right, into a world to now serve and speak uh, for, the, for God's glory in the world. And right as you step outside, again, there'll be compassion info on the bulletin board. There's places to serve, and there's the Connect desk right there where you can get a Connect card if you need to take any next steps. But whatever it is that God's asking you to do for your next step, I would implore you to, to take that step. You know that he's going to be with you, and we're with you in whatever that step is. We're sent out today with Colossians 3, 17 as our benediction as we head out into the world, that whatever we may do in word or in deed, may we do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen.